This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to Bunker Global, the brand new weekly strand from The Bunker. I'm Laura Makin-Isherwood. It's a complicated world out there, so every Friday we're going to boil down what you really need to know about news and politics from around the world. On this week's edition, following a summer of Koran-burning protests, Sweden has raised its terror threat level to high. So can the nation balance constitutional freedom of speech with religious provocations? Plus, Justin Trudeau accuses Meta of putting profit ahead of safety as the social media giant continues to block Canadian news outlets while wildfires burn in the country. And finally, UN judge Patrick Robertson says the United Kingdom can no longer ignore calls for slavery reparations. But how would an estimated £18 trillion bill be paid for? Joining me is Deepo Faloyan, senior editor of Global News Advice and author of Africa is Not a Country. Thanks for joining me, Deepo. Thanks for having me. Now, just before we jump into today's edition, the leader of the Russian mercenary Wagner Group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, has reportedly been killed in a plane crash. It comes after a short-lived rebellion where the Wagner Group waged a coup against Putin in June. Deepo, President Biden has said he's not surprised by the death of Prigozhin. Was it inevitable? It feels like it was inevitable. I think a lot of people are surprised that if it is true that his plane has been shot down uh, with him on board, then I think a lot of people are surprised that it took two months for Putin to get his man. There is this sort of feeling that Prigozhin had taken one step too far in challenging Putin in this way at a time when Russia are sort of struggling to make the advances that they want. So, you know, no one is really surprised that Prigozhin was targeted in this way. He'd made a number of enemies, uh, not only within the Russian government, but also within the military apparatus of the country. At this point in time, there's no official sort of claim that he has been killed from those that are surrounding him. How difficult is it really to establish the facts here? I think, especially in the next sort of few days, we're relying almost entirely on the Russian state to clarify whether Prigozhin was indeed on that flight or not. Uh, We're seeing messages from Wagner mercenaries who seem to believe that Prigozhin is dead. There is, you know, perhaps a belief that Prigozhin has orchestrated some of this himself so that he can go off hiding. Um, And, you know, that does seem to be a bit unlikely at this point, considering what he's sort of stated over the last few weeks and in in the last two months, sort of saying that, you know, Wagner will continue strong. Um, So, you know, right now we're relying almost entirely on the Russian state to to clarify exactly what's happened. and, And you can never sort of fully trust the information coming out of Russia. I mean, it's pretty incredible for a man who was once a hot dog salesman, then a catering magnet to become a warlord anyway. And then the last two months just seem incredible. 
yeah, I think we will see a Hollywood film about the life of, uh, of Evgeny Prigozhin when this all settled down. He he lived quite the the life, and there was quite the rise to mercenary leader, causing a lot of sort of uh, chaos amongst former French colonies in West Africa. He certainly got up to to, to a lot over the last few years, and I think you know the, his story and the story of Wagner. I think is something that's going to continue to be told when you know this period of of Russian history uh, is over. Well, it's obviously an ongoing story. Details are still coming in, you know, every minute. So keep your eyes on the Bunkers feed for more information on this story as it happens. This summer, Sweden has been making headlines around the world. No, not just for winning Eurovision or for the discussions over its accession to NATO, but for activities that are taking place on its streets. Far-right activists have been burning copies of the Quran in protest, they say, against Islam. As well as causing outrage, their actions have triggered a domestic debate around Sweden's freedom of expression laws and their limits, as well as intensifying tensions with Muslim countries around the world. Officials are seemingly so concerned that this week Sweden's terror alert level was officially raised to high. So, Depot, let's take it right back. What sparked these demonstrations in the first place? Well, it's really difficult to say for certain because what we've seen is a lot of individuals taking upon themselves to protest and that they're not sort of claiming to be part of a singular movement. So back in January of, of 2022, we saw a prominent right-wing figure protest in front of the Swedish embassy. And, you know, he decided to burn a few pages of the Quran saying that, you know, it it was his own personal views about the teachings of, of Islam. And then we've sort of seen a number of sort of copycat destructions ever since. And so it, it, it's difficult to kind of paint it and, and leave kind of one particular group responsible for, for what we've seen, which is kind of what has been the concern from the Swedish. And, and we've seen similar things in Denmark as well, you know, that they don't really have a particular group that they can kind of distance themselves to. A lot of these individuals are trying to kind of paint Swedish society as being anti-Islam. And, and that has been a, a, a really sort of concerning thing for the prime minister of Sweden, as well as kind of the Danish government as well. So how catching is it then, this copycat kind of movement within Sweden? At the moment, it's 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 difficult to 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 fully understand kind of the motivations. A, a lot of people believe that uh, you know a lot of these individuals are trying to deliberately sabotage Sweden's attempts to enter NATO. Uh, you know, uh, Sweden have been holding out, waiting for Turkey to drop their veto on their NATO ascension. So you know, a lot of people feel like you know this has been an attempt by certain far right groups to antagonize Turkey and to, you know, say that this is an anti-Islamic country. And so they were hoping that sort of Turkey would would maintain its veto against Sweden. So that is part of kind of the, the real concern amongst the government, but also amongst Swedish people themselves who are, you know, just as baffled as everyone else about why this sort of sudden spate of Quran burning is happening across their country. And it's raised that other question, hasn't it, about freedom of speech, because mm-hmm. the government's in a bit of a pickle, really, trying to work out what they can and can't do here, mm-hmm. because people are arguing that it is their right to do this. So where are the boundaries when it comes to these kinds of acts? So Sweden have sort of one of the most liberal freedom of speech laws. You know, they have very strict concepts of, of what can be curtailed by the government and by the state. They have a few very specific um, sort of constant constitutional requirements that stop someone from, you know, having their their freedom to protest and freedom to express themselves. You know, it extends 
beyond just speech, but also kind of thought and intent. So the Swedish government are proud of their freedom of speech laws, but this is certainly testing the boundaries. And and we've seen, you know, both the Swedish and the Danish government kind of make suggestions that they'll look to uh, try and see whether there is an opportunity here to, especially when, you know, there are fears of national security implications, you know, whether they can actually use those concerns to say that Koran burning in this way should be curtailed in some form. And you said about national security there. The Prime Minister of Sweden has said that some extremist and terrorist groups have called on their sympathisers to avenge Mm. this action. Mm. Al-Qaeda said to have urged violent retribution. So how dangerous is this in terms of, you know, terror threat and that national security level and angle? Yeah, I mean, it certainly is dangerous. You know, we've seen we've seen groups in the past take Quran burning and and the sort of desecration of of the Quran and and the teachings of Islam very very seriously. And so, you know, we've seen it in France, and we've we've seen a number of these instances play out. And so, the Swedish government, through their intelligence and through sort of public reporting, we know that this is a, a serious concern. And you know, the Swedish people themselves have have tried to sort of lobby the government to to sort of say that you know how are we going to deal with this? How are we going to make it clear that that this act is not representative of how the wider population feel? Has there been any other reaction from other nations? Well, I mean, Sweden have accused Russia of trying to spread disinformation around this. You know, uh, Russia obviously do not want Sweden to join NATO. And so it's certainly in Russia's interest to to point to Sweden and to, to say to nations like Turkey, um, who have a powerful veto, to say to them, you know, look at what's going on in Sweden. You know, don't allow them into NATO. They are an anti-Islamic country who are passionate about burning the Quran. And, you know, they what they stand for is completely opposite to what you stand for. Is this a nation that you really want to potentially have to go in and fight on behalf of? Um, so both the Swedish and the Danish government have, have tried to push back against a lot of that uh, misinformation. There have been reports that some of the individuals who were involved in some of the early Quran burning incidences perhaps were funded by certain Russian groups. There's, there's sort of that at play as well. And so, you know, there is this sort of mini European NATO geopolitical battle at hand, which is why you see the Swedish government sort of trying to take this seriously and try to get on the front foot and to make it clear that, you know, they are trying to find ways of managing the situation within their freedom of speech laws. Next, Canada is experiencing the worst season of wildfires on record. Tens of thousands of people have been evacuated and with people not in their homes, officials have been looking at other ways to distribute information. But they have a problem because Canada recently passed legislation, meaning internet companies must pay news publishers when their content is shared on social media platforms. In response to that, Meta has started shutting down access to news articles on both Facebook and Instagram, with Google expected to follow suit. And it's created a bit of an information blackout, especially alongside those ongoing wildfires. Deepak, what do you think Meta is trying to do here? What's the company's kind of argument? Well, Meta are basically saying that news doesn't really matter to us, that it represents, I think they claim less than 5% of the information that their users see across Facebook and Instagram. And so they're, they're saying that, you know, they don't owe these 
news companies much because these news companies don't offer them much in return. Now, obviously, the government in Canada, and we've seen it also in Australia as well, and around the world are trying to also manage a situation where these social media companies have a huge amount of influence on the way in which we all consume our news. The vast majority of people consume their news off of Facebook. And, you know, as depressing as we might feel, that is, that's just the reality of life right now. And media companies are struggling with the almost sort of death of traditional advertising um, to find new models. And it's impossible to find a new model without considering just how much traffic is gained by these social media companies. And Meta, of course, have a different argument to say, you know, across everything that we're doing, it just isn't really helping us enough to then pay these media companies. And that is why if Canada Meta are saying are going to force them to pay these companies, then they would just rather not have these uh, news sites on their platforms at all. Could it actually be a bit of a problem then for the news companies rather than helping them, this decision? Yes, it can be, you know, and it likely will be. People go and they get their news while they're scrolling through, you know, friends' posts. They also see headlines and and, and that's where a lot of media companies are getting their, their clicks from. There does need to be a balance. You know, we're seeing that a lot of these social media companies are sucking up a lot of advertising revenue that traditionally would have gone to media companies. And so we're seeing so many media companies around the world outside of not just kind of the the main government funded ones, a lot of media companies finding it hard to stay alive. And every day we see kind of small rural newspapers closing down. We see previously successful media companies, online media companies struggling to make the finances work. And so there does does both need to be an agreement whereby some of this revenue is better shared across media companies, but also uh, there needs to be a recognition that, you know, at this point now, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Google, you know, pretty much all the cards are in their hands now. Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, has accused Meta of putting profit ahead of safety. Is that a bit of a chess move from him? Welcome to capitalism. You know, Meta have never pretended really to be this great big social project. It, it, it is, at the end of the day, a media company that is trying to make money and is trying to maximize its revenue and, and trying to get people uh, fixed onto these sites for as long as possible. And I think, you know, Justin Trudeau, the best thing that he can do is probably look to Australia, who last year passed a similar law um, that had the same reaction from from Meta um, and Google who said, well, you know, in that case, then, you know, we won't publish news on our platform uh, across Australia. The government and Meta came to an understanding which sort of shifted it to say that at some point in the future, the government could designate Meta and Google as platforms that have to pay news organisations for publishing their, their content. And that sort of inspired Meta to get into sort of private agreements with news organizations across Australia, um, which ended up making those, you know, news organizations millions and millions of, of, of dollars. I think a lot of people assume that Canada would do something similar. That just hasn't happened yet. And I imagine sort of in time, these social media companies, though they say it only attracts about 5% of, of their revenue, that's still a considerable amount. And I think that they themselves would want these news organizations uh, publishing on their platforms. I think eventually we'll see an agreement between all the parties.
particularly, you know, if Facebook starts losing subscribers, mm. the social media kind of trend fizzles out or people move to other platforms, then I guess it might be in their favour. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, Meta are very much still in competition with Twitter for eyeballs. We we saw Meta recently launch Threads, which is direct competition to Twitter. And on Threads itself, you know, a lot of media companies, they tend to be the first ones to rush onto these platforms and to publish more than the average individual does. And so, you know, they do recognise that there is, especially in moments of sudden tragedy or, or moments when, you know, um, everyone wants to know what's going on. Uh, we're, we're constantly living in these, you know, previously unprecedented moments. And so every day feels like there's a new, um, you know, wild breaking new story. And so people do rush onto social media to try and understand the world around them. And I think that Meta recognize that and they, they know that it'll be in their benefit in the long run to continue to have, you know, news organizations explaining the world to people through their platforms. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. William Gladstone is one of Britain's best-known prime ministers, but his life was linked to slavery. William's father, John Gladstone, owned sugar plantations and enslaved more than 2,500 Africans. He also received £106,000 from the UK government when slavery was abolished as compensation in the 1880s. Now, more than a century on, John Gladstone's descendants have travelled to the Caribbean to say sorry for their family's actions. Depot, where do we even start with this? Maybe we go with John Gladstone first. Tell us a bit about this man. What did he do? So John Gladstone was an incredibly prominent slaver. Um, as you mentioned, he owned about 2,500 slaves across what we now know as Guyana, as well as Jamaica. Um, it was a slave trade that was incredibly brutal. His sugar plantations were the site of you know, some of the most devastating rebellions that saw hundreds of slaves killed as a result of them sort of standing up, asking for rights. So, you know, when eventually slavery was then abolished in 1833, he was then offered more money than any other plantation owner at that time. So that gives you a sense of just how prominent he was as a slaver. You know, he was awarded 106,000 pounds, which in today's money is about 10 million pounds. And that was not just for just one plantation, but I think he made about 11 different claims as someone who said, you know, that that is how much money that I will lose by the uh, ending of the slave trade. So, you know, that gives you a sense of just the scale of how involved he was during that time. I mean, it's just, it's un unfathomable really mm -hmm. to think about the impact that this had and now continues to have, you know, more than a century on. And then ultimately his son, William, mm -hmm. was prime minister and his whole education essentially was funded by the slave trade. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the 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 family's wealth and wealth that continues down um, to his his kids and his grandkids, you know, came directly from this incredibly profitable trade. Now, during his time, Glenn Gladstone sort of tried to, to to sort of place himself as as more liberal around these issues. He he famously uh, in eighteen seventy one complained that uh, why did we see fit to steal prized assets and prized treasures from what was then Ethiopia? The Magdala treasures, which are still in the VNA today, um, you know, he saw it as, as he he was someone early on who was uh, claimed to be a believer in in repatriation. But you know, he he always kind of struggled to align those views with you know other views that sort of seemed to to claim that you know his father deserved uh, some of the money that he was given by the ending of the slave trade. So um, he defended those payments, didn't he? Really? Yeah, he did, and he he. Uh, you know, would regularly sort of justify that it, it was a need to to, uh, to to end slavery by by paying plantation owners um, for the land that was taken off of them. Um, so you know, he 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 had this uh, sort of struggle with those sort of two sides of himself. Well, now the Gladstone family have travelled to Guyana mm-hmm. to coincide with the two hundredth anniversary of one of those rebellions that you were speaking out mm-hmm. about. That's sort of spoken as being one of the sparks that then led eventually to mm-hmm. the abolishment of slavery. What sort of message do you think they're trying to put across there? They're going to say sorry. Mm. Can they say sorry? It's a difficult one, really. I mean, they are both going to, you know, say sorry, and and they have spoken in pretty stark terms about their ancestor. You know, they've said that he was a vile man. They haven't tried to kind of sugarcoat his actions or claim that he was just a man of the times. You know, they've said that he was a brutal uh, plantation owner um, whose legacy is a shame on their family. They have also come with money and they've come, I think, with about £100,000 that they are dedicating to the region. And um, and so, you know, they're, they're both trying to, I think, lead the way in the sense of, of other um, descendants of slave owners, um, while at the same time trying to make it clear that the Gladstone family and the Gladstone name, um, you know, shouldn't only be dominated by, by John Gladstone. Now, this whole kind of talk of... of- reparations, the discussion around it is is gathering momentum. There is greater and greater pressure being applied, particularly to the UK, to pay back some of the money uh, to those nations that, that had a lot of people within their, their nations enslaved. And it's gathered even more traction since a UN judge has said the tide is now turning on paying that back. So where does the UK stand on this? Does it look like there will be any more cash coming from the UK government or will it continue to be these individual families that offer up this money? Well, for now, it doesn't seem like the UK government uh, is interested in any sort of conversations around reparations. Uh, Rishi Sunak has said recently that he doesn't think it is his responsibility to apologise for slavery, um, nor is it the UK government's responsibility to pay a fee. You know, he has justified it by saying, you know, there's no need to look back. We need to look forward. Um, But it does seem kind of very difficult to look forward without looking back and understanding exactly what happened. So for now, I think it's going to fall on individual communities, individual families, individual organizations who have benefited from the slave trade to decide for themselves whether they feel it fit to um, recognize the benefit that they've enjoyed from uh, the slave trade and, and the legacy of the slave trade, while also trying to come up with some number 
to pay back for what they benefited. And it, it may not be a number, it may be uh, through community schemes. It, there, there are other ways of trying to define reparations, um, but at the moment it's certainly up seems to be up to individuals rather than something that the government's willing to lead on. And talking about, you know, the, the figures, the the amount of cash that's very difficult to sort of quantify, a report published in June that was looking at how much each nation should yeah. perhaps pay back it said that Britain's sum would be set at around £18 trillion. Yeah, only. Yeah. Only. Yeah. So so how do, how do you how do you quantify this? How do you work out how much is owed? Yeah. I mean the report itself sort of called it an unfathomable amount of money. Um it, it got to 20 trillion by sort of calculating the the depth what they call kind of the depth and the breadth and the longevity of of slavery and so you know it calculated kind of just how much pain was inflicted on each individual, uh how long it was inflicted on them for and how long it's taken for us to have this conversation. So adding interest payments across, I think about sort of 25 territories and regions and, and eventually landed on on 20 trillion. And obviously, you know, it, it's a number that most of us can't get our heads around and we can never get our head around. Um, but it, I, I think, you know, reports like that try and just give people a stark realization of just how, um, I think even for most people around society, we don't really fully understand just how tragic slavery was. You know, we 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 talk about it very casually, but we don't really understand the depth to which, you know, slavery destroyed communities and destroyed ancestries and, and, and stole so much that can't be retrieved for communities. And so I guess kind of that number is probably really meant to shock more than anything else us into trying to have these conversations in a way um, that can be realistic looking into the future. Well, a very sobering edition yeah. of The Bunker, I think, this week. But that is the end of this episode. Deepo, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. We'll see you back on The Bunker soon. Listeners, if you enjoyed the show, we'll be back next Friday for another edition. And of course, there's a new episode of The Bunker every day, handmade by humans. Remember, you can get them early, plus exciting new merchandise for backers coming soon when you back us on Patreon. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bunker Global was written and presented by Deepo Fallian and Laura Megan Isherwood. The producer was Liam Tate, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, the group editor is Andrew Harrison, with music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott. The Bunker Global is a Podmasters production.